Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with longtime TV voice of the New York Yankees, Michael Kay. All right, let's do this. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today we welcome a man that's been announcing games for the New York Yankees since 1992. He hosts one of the biggest sports talk shows in the country, and he's got a new book coming out called Center Stage. He does it all. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael K. Michael, thanks for coming on the program. You got it. Thanks for having me. Tell me about the book. Well, we do a show called Center Stage on Yes, uh, and uh, we've had like 250 shows over about 20 years. So uh, a couple of years back, I had throat surgery, so I couldn't speak for six weeks. So I read Howard Stern's book, Howard Stern Comes Again, which is like the best hits of all of his interviews that he's done over the years. I said, that might be something that we could do at Center Stage. So I took the 35 best interviews that I did, and we run those in their entirety. And then I tell the backstories of all the interviews, getting the guests, what they were like behind the scenes, how they treated people, kind of like the stuff that you don't see when you, you just watch the interview. So it's kind of a fun book I'm proud of, and it comes out on June 15th. Yeah, I, I, I did a book probably five or six years ago. I went into it very I, – I was let's just say I was pretty skeptical of the book and the book world and, you know, ex-athletes writing books. So they convinced me. Uh, to make it a story about my family. And, and you know, when it was all said and done through the process, it was not only educational, but it got, it got me to kind of bring up, you know, my, my childhood and, and I got to talk about grandpa and it ended up being a fun project for me. Did you, did you enjoy the process? You know what I, I did. And, and it's funny, Brett, what, what I really like uh, about a book and I never knew this, this is the first book I ever did is that it, you know, it, you, people keep score. You know, how the book does is how many book it, books it sells. With radio, you know, even with my radio talk show, you know, there's 11 million people in the listening area, and they hand out like 50 meters, and they try to guess how many people listen to each show, and I think that's it's ridiculous. It's not exact. I like to keep scoring things, and this is real score. If the, if the book's enjoyable... And we're going to see if I did a good job or not. I, I kind of like the feeling of that. All right, June 15th. Let's get to it. You grew up, <clears throat> excuse me, I got a little tickle in my throat. So everybody out there in the Boone podcast world, bear with me today. <laughs> you grew up a big Yankee fan. Tell me about the first time you walked into Yankee Stadium. Um, I guess I was about nine years old. So it was the old Yankee Stadium, not the middle one. And it was ball day um, against the Washington Senators. And I still have that ball. I really do. And I just remember walking out. You know, you've, you've heard these corny stories, and you just see how big it is and how green it is and all the colors come to life. And uh, I was kind of hooked. And, you know, I think in my, the night when I was 9 years old, when I was a 10-year-old, and when I was 11-year-old, I watched or listened to every inning of every single game. I mean, my parents were worried about me because I certainly wasn't good enough to play, but I just knew that I loved this game. I loved watching it and I learning everything about it. And, and when, I, when I grew up as a nine-year-old, 
uh, the Yankees were terrible. So nobody could say that I was a front runner who just picked the best team. I just, for some reason, gravitated toward the Yankees. And, and uh, lucky enough that at nine years old, I knew I was rational enough that I was afraid of getting hit by the baseball in the head, that I wasn't going to be a good player. And I said, you know what? I want to be the Yankee announcer. And boom, yes. it happened. So it's kind of like a fairy tale. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because, I mean, that was that was my next question. It's like Michael Kay growing up as a kid in New York. And my question for you, but I think you already answered it, was was it, you know, most kids probably at that time, was it Mickey Mantle or was it Mel Allen? Obviously, in your case, it was Mel Allen. And it's, I, it's, I, 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 I don't know if you, you probably met him, Brad. My, my guy was was Bobby Mercer. I just, on oh, a yeah. bad team, it was Bobby Mercer and Thurman Munson. And, and like all the years later, I got to work with Bobby as a broadcast partner on Yes and I just it confirmed one thing, Brett, that I had really good taste in idols because he was one of the best people I ever met. So even though I wanted to be a broadcaster, and when I was growing up, it really wasn't Mel then. It was like, it was Frank Nestor, Phil Rizzuto, and Bill White. Those were the only three male voices heard in my house other than my dad. Uh, I looked up to them, but I still loved the players. I mean, Bobby Mercer was the be-all, end-all for me. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, So as a kid... You know, most <clears throat> when you're playing Little League and, and you're sharing stories, would you come out and say, hey, I want to be the announcer? I, I mean, you had to be in the minority, but kind of an interesting thing. Amazing that you were able to fulfill that dream. Not too many people get into that booth. Um, but what was it like for you growing up as a kid? Well, I grew up in the South Bronx, so uh, there wasn't a lot of green grass. And, you know, we played on, you know, really rocky fields and stuff like that. And, um, when I was in Little League and even playing, you know, with my friends in, the, you know, in whatever lot we could find in the Bronx, you know, I'd be, I was the first baseman, but I was always in my head. And even out loud, I'd be doing play by play. Base hit to right field, uh, you know, whatever would come out of my mouth. I wouldn't do play by play when I was hitting because it wasn't too pretty. But uh, when, I, when I was in the field, I did play by play and everybody knew that I liked to announce. But, you know, when a kid says he wants to be something at nine years old, you kind of laugh at it and go, that's just a dream. Uh, uh, who, who knows? I, mean, I didn't know it was going to happen, but that was certainly the dream. No, and it, it is very cool because, uh, you know, I grew up in, in just over the bridge from Philadelphia and, and New Jersey. And you do. You grow up with those voices. And for me, it was Harry Callis and Vi Sum and, and Richie, or, or Richie Ashburn. And I remember just yep. in my house, I, I mean, that was that was baseball to me as a kid. For you, you mentioned Rizzuto, uh, you know, and for the young generation now, uh, it's pretty cool. You know, with Sterling Walden and, and Kay, people are, you know, these nine-year-olds that that uh, Michael Kay is a nine-year-old, the current nine-year-olds are, are emulating you saying, see ya. Uh, that, that's a pretty cool thing because those memories as kids don't go away. I still remember, and you probably know, spending, you know, these days you spend a lot more time with, with my brother Aaron than I do. But he was a, he loved being that commentator doing the play-by-play when he was a kid. You know, he loved baseball and he loved playing first. But he would sit there and put on shows for us, you know, as kids, for me and, you know, and my friends, and he would announce Phillies games in, in the middle of the living room. And it was pretty cool. But, ah. but uh, 
you know, I, I, I love it because it sounds of the game. It's our childhood. And uh, it's pretty cool that that you're going to have little kids yell and see you. You know, that's got to be a pretty, pretty cool thing when somebody comes up to you and says something like that. It kind of it kind of puts your your place in 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 Yankee history. It's, it's, it's so weird you say that. And I don't want to get all like sappy or whatever, but I've had like, you know, 35 year old men and women come up to me. And I, I, you know, I, I just turned 60 in February, but I don't, I think like I'm a 12 year old, so I can't even picture that I'm 60. So I don't think like I'm an older person and like a 35 year old. And I go, you know what? We grew up with you because then, then you realize you've been doing Yankee games for 30 years, which is kind of unbelievable. And when I first started doing the games in 92 with John Sterling on the radio, you know, he used to really root for the Yankees hard. And I had come from a background as a writer. I became a writer first. And so I always tried to be a journalist and right down the middle. And I said, John, why do you care so much how the team does? They don't care if we have a good broadcast. And he leaned over to me and said, cool. If the Yankees win while we're announcing, people will associate us with that. When you bring people good news, people like you, right? Because in the 10 years that I did the games with John, the Yankees went to five World Series and won four of them. And to this day, 40-year-old people come to us. I, I grew up listening to those World Series on the radio, and it means the world to me. It really does. I, I can't even believe that I'm, 30 years later, when I, whenever I walk into the booth, I walk in and I go, I can't believe I'm really doing this. I, I can't believe that this is, you know, this is really my life and this is going to be my legacy. So it's, it's kind of neat. Yeah, it's very cool. All right, you went to college at Fordham. College radio station, kind of impressive. I, I was reading up, and and the alumni there of Alan Alda, and Captain Kangaroo. I remember Captain Kangaroo. I think he was. <laughs> I think he. Ta- I think he taped his show in Philly. <clears throat> and a matter of fact, a young Brett Boone. Now it's bringing it all back. I think I was on the Captain Kangaroo show as a kid no in way. my little Philly. I think I was. I know I did uh, the the Mike Douglas show. But I think I did Captain Kangaroo and a Tasty Cake commercial. That those were my Philly highlights as, as a little kid. Wow. <laughs> but anyway, Charles Osgood and the one and only uh, Vin Scully, uh, all alumni of that Fordham radio station. You were a part of that. Uh, take me through your 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 college days and and your quest, continuing to follow your dream. Well, I went to Fordham because, you know, my sister went there and she had a great experience and I knew they had a good college radio station. Uh, And when I got to Fordham, I was obviously a freshman. My sister was still in school. She was a senior. And I just was really shy. And I just, between classes, you know, there's sometimes three hours between classes and college. I'd go sleep in my car. And like halfway through my freshman year, my sister like just said, let's go. You got to go to the radio station. This is why you came here. So she dragged me up there. And uh, I, I became part of the, the radio station and friends with all the people. And I became really good friends with, um, in my sophomore year, I became really good friends with an uh, uh, incoming freshman. His name was Mike Breen. And we would sit in the campus center having lunch. And he would talk about how he wanted to be the voice of the Knicks. And I said, I want to be the voice of the Yankees. And Mike Breen just got uh, elected to the Basketball Hall of Fame. And he's the voice of the NBA and the voice of the Knicks. So these two, like, creepy kids sitting in the, in the lunchroom <laughs> dreaming of something. It, it worked out for them. So it was just it was just amazing. But the thing, Brett, was that when I was in high school and I was in college, 
I had the worst, the worst New York accent you could ever believe. Like, if you remember the show Welcome Back, Cotter, mm-hmm. um, the, John, the John Travolta character, Barbarino, that's who mm-hmm. I sound like. It was Dem and Duh. I mean, I couldn't get a broadcasting job, and that's, that's why I wanted to, to writing, and I ended up becoming the Yankee beat writer. But by traveling with the Yankees for five years, I'd never traveled as a kid. We didn't have a lot of money. I just heard different voices, and I, I got rid of the Bronx accent and kind of got into the broadcasting that way. But I got my feet wet at Fordham because even with a Bronx accent, I was able to get on the college radio station. Yeah, and you go from Fordham, you go 1982. Uh, like you said, before you were broadcaster, you were in the you were print. Uh, you were, you worked yep. in New York Post, and and I'm always you know I'm curious now being being removed from the game now you know 13 14 years i know what it's like having mike stuck in my face and and you know i, I that, that was part of my job as an athlete i gotta answer your questions but i always wonder now and, and i wonder now more than ever because you know i i would test young reporters when they come in and uh, i'm gonna see what they're made of and i might give them a a quicks you know kind of snide answer and and see see how they react to it. How was that for you being a young reporter? Was that tough? Were you shy? Did you dive in? I, I, take me through the, the life of a young reporter, you know, and for the first time you're reporting, you know, like you said, you're a beat writer with the Yankees. How was that for you? Well, I when I became the beat writer, I guess, Brett, I was 25, which is pretty young. And right. um, I guess I was lucky in a sense. Because when I broke in, the Yankees were terrible. Um, you know, it was, a, it was the back end of the Lou years, and then it went into the Stunt Merrill years, so they didn't do a lot of winning. So and I think an advantage, too, is if you're a reporter and you're the age of the players, there's a lot more you have in common with the guys. So I look at older reporters now, and I don't know how they relate to today's players, but the guy who kind of made my career, this will shock you, he took a liking to me, was Billy Martin. Um, Billy did not like Bill Madden, who worked for the Daily News. He hated him. And I was working for the New York Post. So Billy saw in me like a fresh canvas, a guy who didn't have a preconceived notion of Billy. So he said, well, the first time he goes, what do you think of me? I said, well, what do you mean, what do I think of you? He goes, what do you think of me? I said, well, you know, growing up, you know, I I read all the stories and I I have that, but I I don't know you at all. I don't think anything of you. I don't really know you. I have to get to know you. He goes, that's all I want to hear. I said, what do you mean? He goes, you give me, you give me a fair chance. I'll give you a fair chance. And I'll tell you, Brett, he gave me stories every day. He called me into the office. All right, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. You could write it because he knew it would hurt Bill Madden. And it just raised my profile. The post ran all my stories on the front page. It was amazing. And so this, this older grizzled guy from the, the world champion Yankees of the 1950s. He just took a liking to me and that, that set me on my way. It was amazing that I got him as a resource and I didn't set out to do that, but he, he became so important in my career. Yeah. That Billy Martin legendary Um, media, New York. Uh, Why is it so different? You know, I was there as a visitor quite a bit and, you know, for four days, I, I saw the difference of the New York media. Um, but I never got to see it day in and day out is the New York media. Do they, well, I I guess my question is, 
Is there a pressure in New York because of the reputation of, of the New York media? We're so tough. We're hard hitting. Um, I don't know. Explain it to me. Why is it so different in New York compared to everywhere else in the country? Well, I don't think it's as difficult uh, as it was made out to be now. Uh, I, I don't think the competition is as great. Like when I was a, when I was a beat writer, some of the guys on the other papers, like John Heyman, who's become, you know, a star on MLB network and Jack Curry, who's on the yes network. I mean, just Joel Sherman. So, I mean, we were competing against each other to get back pages and front pages. So there was a lot of competition to try to dig out everything. Now it's not the same at all. It's a different business. But uh, I guess the best answer I could give you, Brett, is that in other towns, it's like the newspapers kind of root for the team. And there aren't, there aren't several different newspapers, you know, competing against each other. So in New York, you know, it's like we're trying to get the best story. Whether it hurts the Yankees or the Mets, well, that's not really the concern. I don't think that's the way it is in Seattle or in, in St. Louis. Uh, I think those are fine reporters there trying to do what they do, but there's not the same competition to break stories. But again, I just don't think it's the same now. I think the reputation uh, is is different than the actuality. It's, it's just not as competitive anymore. So in 92, uh, you go from, from the post to you're sitting next to Sterling. Your, your dreams yeah. are kind of coming true for you. Tell me about Johnny a little bit, the years you've spent with him, the, the nicknames and some of his famous calls. Well, John is guy and, and I love him uh, and he would even admit to you he's he's a little bit you know off center and so he 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 operates a total absence of malice he doesn't like to be confined by rules or anything and you know I remember the first game I ever did was Yankees Red Sox at Yankee Stadium it was opening day at the stadium in 1992 and I'm sitting there and I'm like I, I'm about to like wet myself you know this is it. This is what I want in my whole life, right? And uh, John turns to me with about 15 seconds before we go on the air. And he goes, I've got two pieces of advice as you embark on this career. So I'm getting ready. He's going to tell me, you know, this is the way you speak from your sternum. You know, he goes, um, don't ask me my age on the air. And I talk to myself a lot. Don't be alarmed. And boom, that was the beginning of my career. <laughs> So in the in the '90s, you did a sports you did a sports talk show, and you you know you got to be you're very opinionated on the sports talk show. But then you're going to the booth. You got to call Yankee games. You got to be objective. How did you How did you balance the two? Well, I didn't. You know, when when I did the ten years on the radio with John, I would occasionally do sports talk, um, but. Once I got the yes job, Brett, then I got an everyday radio show on ESPN in New York. And I got to tell you one thing. It's the hardest thing to balance because, first of all, you're the voice of the team. But on the radio show, you got to be honest. If, if, if you're going to, like, put lipstick on a pig, everybody's not going to respect what you have to say. And one of the toughest things that I have to do, and my radio show is actually also simulcast on the Yes Network. And what really stinks is they play that show in the clubhouse. Yeah. So you might be criticizing Brett Gardner, and he's sitting there watching it. And, and I got to tell you, that sucks. But I know that I, you know, I got to be honest, too. And one of the, 
the toughest things that I have to do, I, I got to admit to you, I, I have a great affection for your brother. I think he's one of the nicest people I have ever met in the game. And sometimes you have to criticize what a manager does, and it tears me apart. And I've talked to Aaron about it. I said, I, I hope you know that this isn't personal, and he's great about it. But, you know, I'm sure his wife hears it. I'm sure your mom hears it. Uh, you know, if I criticize something that Aaron does, it hurts. It hurts me to do. And I, I'm sure he doesn't like hearing it. So it's a really, really tough tightrope to walk. It really is, and I hate doing it. But, you know, the money's really good. But one day when I'm just doing the games, I'll be much more relaxed or I don't have to go and, like, you know, rip, uh, rip a guy for making a, a, you know, a mental error from going to second to third. So that's the hard part about doing a talk show and the games at the same time. Yeah, and I think you mentioned something. You, you've got to be honest or you'll lose the audience. The audience will, you know, you can you can – kind of brush over some some little indiscrepancies and and smooth it over but if you if you get into a pattern where you're smoothing over everything that that audience is is going to start eventually go wait a minute wait a minute you, you're just you know you you're a homer you don't you don't criticize these guys when you got to be criticized i remember the first time they they sh- shoved me in the booth in 03 for that playoff and you know i got back home after doing the the, the games the yankees red Sox, and teammates of mine you didn't even talk you didn't even do this well first of all i was a player i was in the middle of my career it, it was they were trying the third man in the booth i was in there with buck and mccarver i didn't really take it serious like i'm just here and they're paying me a lot and i get to watch my brother in the meantime but but i did i i i, I can I can really relate to what you said about being critical and that fine line because there'd be a ground ball to Soriano at second base and he'd kick it. And, and McCarver would turn to me and go, Booney, why did he kick it? Now (laughs) I got to play against these guys in, in four months. My true honest answer. He's not a very good second baseman. He should be in left field. But that's not, like you said, these players, and I was one of them, in between my bats, don't think I'm not listening to everything you say on that television station. So when, oh, you yeah. come into that, when you come into that clubhouse and I'm giving you a look, and I did this with, oh, I remember Marty Brenneman I had in Cincinnati, and, and we hear everything. The guys that I really love, liked, I could handle being critiqued. That's not a problem as a player. I think if, if I'm making a lot of money and I'm not doing my job, I need to be called out for that. Same as when I'm going good, I'm going to be praised for it. That's the nature of the beast. It's just, I always just ask people, critique me, but just do it with some professionalism, some class, and we're going to be all good. We've got to know going into this. We, we know what we signed up for. So, yeah, I, I appreciate what you're saying and, and the critique, and it is a balancing act for you. Uh, but uh, that, that was my my that three. Do, The one thing that I try to do, Brett, because I never played, I will never, ever, 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 ever criticize a physical error. Because I can't do it. I couldn't do it. I I think hitting a baseball is the single hardest thing to do in all the sports. The thing that I'll be critical of, and I think I I can do this, I've seen enough baseball, is when Gary Sanchez tries to go to third base on a ball hit in front of him, that's inexcusable, and I can say that. But if he drops a pop-up or can't block a ball, I'm not going to say that. I mean, that's what Paul O'Neill and David Cohn are there for, and it's tough for them, yeah. too, because if you played the game, you know, it's a really hard thing to do. It's really, yeah. really tough. 
Yeah, and and you mentioned the Sanchez guy. I was watching, you know, because now I, I had Paulie Paul O'Neill on the on the podcast recently, and and I told him I had to admit, I said, you know, you know, I really hate you guys. I, I really can't stand the New York Yankees, but by my family ties, <laughs> I'm forced to be a semi fan. So I see you these days a lot more than you think. And yeah, there's been some some base run running blunders as of late. Uh, with the Sanchez going, to, I think it happened a couple times. Not to Sanchez, but yeah, those are those are things that are inexcusable. Those are things that, as minor leaguers, and I've done it. Uh, you're coming up, and it's like that's what you make the ball be behind you when going to third in a big situation. Don't give him an easy out. Uh, it seems like nowadays, right. though, there's a lot of that, you know. And and uh, I don't know. That's frustrating for me as a player. I yell at the TV. But but I you don't hear you don't hear what I'm saying. They're going to hear what you say. <laughs> Actually, you know uh, what, Brett? You you asked me about the media. Uh, I don't think the print media is as tough. But you played in places like this. I think that in New York, the broadcasters are not allowed to be homers. If if we're homers, we get criticized by these radio and television critics in the newspapers. And like you know, you go to Chicago. Remember Hawk Harrison. He would go good guys two, bad guys one. I mean, he rooted on the air. And sometimes players come over from other teams and they hear the announcers be like critical and right down the middle and they think that we're being really negative. You know, I've had run-ins with CeCe. You know, CeCe Sabathia doesn't like me because he thought that I was too honest on the air. And that's something that you have to deal with. But this isn't Cleveland and it's not Seattle and we 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 just don't root on the air here, but in other places they do. So I understand players getting used to it. That's where New York is different. So 2002, the Yes Network launches. It's it's. I think at the time, I think it was it was Steinbrenner's baby, and I think at yep. the time, uh, how was that jump to from from radio to TV? And this was a pretty big risk. And it ended up being a home run, but but uh, how was that in the beginning for, for the Yes Network? It was a big risk, and it, I think it changed sports. It really did, because now every team wants a regional sports network, because let's be honest, it kind of prints money for the team. Um, but they took a risk, because they had a real good deal with the MSG Network at the time, where the Yankees were getting like 50 or $60 million a year in, in rights fees, which was unheard of. But they decided to roll the dice, and uh, again, it was a big chance. It was a big, big risk, and it was a big risk for me. You know, I didn't even think I was being considered. Then all of a sudden, John Filippelli, who runs the Yes Network, said, we want you to be the play-by-play guy. I could have stayed with John Sterling for the next 30 years of my life and been happy, but I thought I'd, I'd give it a shot. And uh, the first year was tough because uh, cable companies didn't want to carry us because they knew that if this took off, then they'd lose a lot of rights fees. And the biggest cable company, Cablevision, would carry us. And we almost went out of business. But then the, the, the politicians got involved, and they worked something out. And the second year, all systems were going. They haven't looked back since then. It's, it's, I mean, the Yes Network is almost worth as much as the New York Yankees themselves. So it's been a good risk for them, a good gamble. And they, you know, they hit the lottery with this. All right, you've worked, you've worked with a lot of guys. You mentioned Bobby Mercer, your he was your guy grow, uh, growing up. He wore his number in Little League, number one. Uh, I'm going to go a yep. quick, quick. Uh, we're going to run through some of the guys. little rapid fire. and Just 
just give me one or two lines. What, what comes to mind when I mention their name? Let's go with Bobby Mercer. Uh, nice. Love the Yankees. Uh, one of the sweetest gentlemen that I've ever come across in sports. Joe Girardi. Intense. Just the way he prepared for games, he would prepare for broadcast. Uh, never, ever was, um, never was left unprepared. Knew every single player, knew their tendencies. Attacked the game as if, um, as if he was managing it. And I remember when he was about to become a manager, I said, you could be a big star in the broadcast booth. What are you doing? He goes, they don't keep score up here. I need to have the score kept. So now a lot of gray, gray hairs later, he's got a lot of scores being kept. Kenny Singleton. One of the finest gentlemen I've ever met in the game. Uh, loves the game. Every day he comes to work. Uh, he's got a smile on his face. Uh, like throughout baseball. Uh, I really, I love the guy. He's, he's that special of a person. And currently you've got uh, Coney. Dave is one of the smartest people that I've ever like met. Uh, certainly one of the smartest athletes I've ever dealt with. I think David could be anything he wants to be. I think he'd be a phenomenal manager. I think he'd be an off the charts pitching coach, but does he want to put in that kind of time? And he probably makes three times as much as a broadcaster than he would as a pitching coach. So he's kind of like landlocked in. He's so good at this. I think Brett, I think he's the best color analyst in the game better than anybody on national TV too. I just think he's a really special broadcaster. Paul O'Neill. He is our era's Phil Rizzuto. He'll say anything on the air. He's funny, knows the game, can break it down. And to this day though, you had him on. I think he still feels uncomfortable criticizing a player because he still has that player sensibility but uh, he just he has fun in the booth. Every single game, you have a lot of laughs with him, and, and we become really good friends. He's the one guy that I covered as a, as a player. I never thought he'd be a broadcaster, ever, because he hated dealing with the media. But when he dealt with him, he always gave good answers, so maybe I should have known from that. But his, uh, his excellence in the booth is a, a huge surprise from the player that he was. And a controversial guy, but a personal personal favorite of mine we'll end with is Lou Pinella. Lou was great. Um, you know, he, he just, he just spoke off the top of his head. He didn't have a filter, uh, but the most uncomfortable times, Brett, and our, our bosses did it on purpose was when I would do play by play and they'd have Lou and Paul in the booth. And I don't know if there's any other oh, way to yeah, say it. They yeah. don't like each other. No. And like Lou I, I would say I, something, right? And yeah. he'd lean back and he'd like wink at me because he knew that he would piss Paul off. And then Paul would get steam, you know, steam would come out of his ears. So that was always uncomfortable. They thought it would be fun. When those two guys did games together, it was not fun. It was uncomfortable. Yeah, because Lou and, and myself, we go back a long way. And, and uh, I had Lou as a, early as a player, you know, early in my career. And man, me and him, we almost went to fisticuffs a couple times uh, in Seattle in the early days. And I got traded to the Reds. And then I hear the the Lou stories with, uh, you know, with Paulie, Paul O'Neill. And and I was doing it. And then I came back to Seattle and Lou became my all time favorite manager. 
one of a kind. They broke the mold when, when, when Lou was born. My favorite guy. And I, I was preparing for the Paul O'Neill podcast, and I thought, you know, I probably shouldn't bring up the, the, the Lou story. You know, the Lou stories is great for most of my guests, but I thought with Paulie, I'm probably not going to bring it up. So, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Lou, he's a beauty. He is, he is one of a kind. I, um, once, I once asked Paul, I said, Paul, why don't you get along with him? I said, because he wanted you to hit home runs in, in Cincinnati. He goes, no, it's not that. I said, well, what is it? He goes, he would tell guys on Seattle to throw in my head. He goes, how am I supposed to like him? I said, well, I can could, I could understand that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, these guys we mentioned, what, what did they teach you about the game? Because these are all ex-players. They teach me. So the, the guy that taught me the most, Brett, to tell you the truth, when I was starting out in, you know, the first manager when I was a radio announcer was Show Walter. And, mm-hmm. like, I'd have to do the pregame interview, you know, three minutes with him. But because he's so anal, you know, the game would start at 7. I said, what time do you want me to come in for the interview? And I get, get into the office about 1. I said, 1? And I'd sit there with him for three hours and just watch him prepare for a game. I've never seen a guy who knows so much baseball, and I just learned so much from him just seeing the game through his eyes. You know, I used to see it through the eyes of a fan, but then you're almost seeing it through the eyes of a professor, and he taught me a lot about the game. He's, he's kind of like... Billy without the warts, you know, Billy taught me a lot. And all of these guys that I work with, just to see the way David thinks through a game, you know, you just, uh, it's sometimes aggravating when you hear how fans interpret what's happening when it's really not happening that way. These guys know what's happening because they were in, they were in the foxholes with each other. They played the game. They know exactly what it means. So I, I like to get that perspective because I don't know how to play the game on that level. They do. So I, I, I just think, I mean, every day is like, a master class in baseball working with these guys. Let's fast forward to the 08 season, the final season at uh, old Yankee stadium. And um, you got to do the final game. And and I think what people don't realize out there is the yes network. You bring the the games to us uh, on a daily basis, but when they have a national game and back then it was ESPN, uh, yes, networks down, correct? For that final game yep. at Yankee Stadium. But you got to you got to get on the come on the broadcast, and I think it was uh, Miller and Morgan. You, you took over and, and came in in the seventh inning and you got to f- call that final game. Uh, tell me about that a little bit. Well, when I saw that, you know, the last game we weren't gonna have, I was crushed. It really was. And I just expected, you know, not to broadcast it. And like a week before the broadcast, John Miller called me. You know, you, you deserve to be on this broadcast. You know, you're the Yankee announcer. You should be on this broadcast. Would you come in and do the seventh inning on ESPN? And I thought that that was one of the most generous things that any announcer could do. Really, think about it. He didn't have to do that. If he didn't do it, nobody would have thought any less of him. And for him to do that... And I got to call the last hit at the old Yankee Stadium. I was on the air when Jason Giambi got an infield single. That was it. And it was all because of John Miller. So that meant a hell of a lot to me. To this day, I think it's one of the classiest gestures that any broadcaster had ever done for me. So I'll never forget it. I really will never forget that he allowed me in the booth that day. Uh, that same year, 08, uh, Yankee Stadium got the All-Star game. You got, to, you got to do the home run derby. I got to hit a few. I wasn't the best home run derby guy, but how was it bringing it to, to the country? 
Well, I, what I did was, you know, MLB said, would you call the home runs on the field? So I guess Chris Berman did on ESPN. So every home run hit, I was like screaming, see ya. And I almost <laughs> lost my voice because of Josh Hamilton. You remember Josh Hamilton in that, in that home run derby? He almost hit a ball out of Yankee Stadium. It was unbelievable the way he was hitting. It was just really fun because the stadium was shaking. There were 56,000 people. It was an awesome experience. Old Yankee Stadium or new? I understand why they went to new, but old Yankee Stadium was special. It, had a, it just had a different feel to it. It, it just, uh, the fans were on top of you. You know, you can't, you can't build it that way anymore with architecture. They're not allowed to have an overhang. But I think the overhang at Yankee Stadium was a real intimidation factor for visiting teams. I think it helped them in postseasons. Nothing like it. That place, that's, to this day, probably my favorite. Uh, did you get a souvenir from the old stadium? Um, I have dirt. I went on the field after the game and I scooped up some like hefty, ba- not hefty bags, like uh, sandwich bags of dirt that I have somewhere in my house. I think that's the, uh, that's the, um, the souvenir I have. And then somebody sent me um, a, a pair of seats in the last row of the upper deck um, behind home plate because that's where I used to sit as a kid. Uh, there's a, those are called general admission seats for $1.50. So the seats I used to sit in, they sent me those seats. So, so I have that in the dirt. And and something I wanted to cover with you, it's and to me, to as a player, um, you know, when people mention old timers games, oh, whatever, we're going to see the old guys go out there. I think there's something different about Yankee old timers game. I think they do it right. Uh, I've always had an admiration for the Yankees uh, with their, the, the way they associate themselves so much with their past, with their history. I think it's awesome. I think it's awesome that a, that, that a grandpa and a father and a son can go to a Yankee game and, and, you know, when I was playing, hey, Yogi Bear's on the field and the grandpa can relate to that and the dad can relate to the modern day, you know, at the time, the Derek Jeters. Now, and, and his son is seeing these upcoming guys, uh, Aaron Judge. I, I, I think the Yankees just do it right. Um, and, and you've been a part of a lot of these old timers games. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? It's one of the coolest things I get to do each year. And I remember the first time the Yankees asked me to do it, I was stunned. Um, you know, Frank Messer had been doing it forever. And that game, that old-timers game, Frank Messer came out. And they said, I turn over the introduction duties to Michael Kay. And to this day, I still can't, I can't even put into words what that meant. And when I started doing it, Brett, I'm standing out on the field, this kid from the South Bronx, Right who bled Yankees, and I'm introducing Yogi Berra, Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, Whitey Ford, Tommy Henrik, every one of them, everyone from the great Yankee teams of the 40s and the 50s. And now it's changed. You know, a lot of that generation has passed away, and now you're now I'm standing there introducing Tino Martinez and David Cohn and Paul O'Neill, and you're right. It's kind of like a passing of the torch from generation to generation and just to be a small part of that just amazing and and you're right the Yankees know that a big part of the Yankee brand is what happened in the past in the 27 championships and they honor those they they do not forget them and they treat those players when they come back to New York like they're gold uh, and they are I mean they are the Yankees they're, they're the 
the structure on which everything is built. So I think it's one of the neatest days of the year. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of players, a lot of my peers, we, you know, we all played for different teams, but I think there's a, there's a genuine, uh, you know, there's an envy there. It's like, man, being a Yankee, that's cool. I mean, those old timer, it's just, it was, it's what makes the Yankees the Yankees. It's why they're probably the number one franchise in all of sports. And, and that's just another reason, uh, the way they treat the, the players of the past. It's it's pretty awesome. I uh, went through this with a couple of the Yankees, Tino Martinez and, and Paul O'Neill. They've been on the show. 9-11. Take me through that day. I was home. Uh, and back then, before I had kids, I slept really late. Uh, and I was sleeping and my mom called me. She said, turn on the TV. And then the whole, you know, I'm watching the whole world change. But the weirdest part of that day, Brett, was I get a call at about 11 o'clock in the morning and it's Al Leiter who I was friends with for a long time. He had not traveled with the Mets to Pittsburgh the, the night before because he wanted to take his kid to school for the first day. And so he was on a, he was in a cab going to the airport and uh, that's when the towers got hit. So they're closing down Manhattan and he's out of Manhattan and they're not having any flights take off and he doesn't know the games are canceled yet. And back then I lived in Westchester. He said, Michael, can, I'm in a cab. Can I come by your house? And, uh, I said, sure. And so he comes by like 20 minutes later and the cab driver uh, that had picked him up in Manhattan at his apartment was of middle Eastern descent and cried the whole way there crying to Al that, you know, his people had nothing to do with it. it. You know, he doesn't understand why this was done. And everybody's stressed out. And Al kept saying, I don't blame anybody. I don't blame I'm like, just paid like the cab driver, like $300. Please stop. Just go. Uh, then he, he came to my place. And then my sister lived close by. So we all went to her place, picked my mom up. And we were there. And Al proceeded to eat the entire refrigerator at my sister's house. All he did was eat and drink everything that was in the refrigerator. And then by the time Manhattan opened back up, he took a cab back in the city to be with his family. So that that's my one lingering memory, other than the awful things that happened of 9-11 that I spent it with Al Leiter. Yeah, that was quite a day. And I remember we, oh. came, to, we came to New York, uh, I think within a couple of weeks, and, and I got to tour uh, Ground Zero when they you know, went down there, they put a yellow helmets on us. And this is kind of before, you know, cell phones, where we were recording everything. So I don't have any footage of it, but I just remember, uh, it's something like I've never seen, you know, that the clouds were billowing still. I mean, it was still seething from, from what had happened to you two weeks previous. And I'll, I'll never forget that. It was, it was, uh, wow. What a, what a time in time in our history. I don't know if it affected you as a player, but when we started to play again, I felt weird, like getting excited on the air about a play. It just it felt so insignificant. And, and it took letters from fans to say, you've got to go back to like having fun on the air and getting excited because the three hours of, of, of listening to a game, that takes us away from all this darkness. So I realized that you know, I always used to hear like, Sports took people away from their problems. And I said, ah, that's just cliche, but it's not. It really does. It, for those three and a half hours, you can forget about your problems, forget about everything bad that's going on in life and just lock into that game. So 
John and I just returned to the way we used to call games because that's what people wanted. That helped people out. It was such a dark time in our city and our country's history. It was it was tough. Steinbrenner. I personally, as an opponent, loved him. He was he was what I dreamed of having as a as an owner. Um, because a lot of times in a lot of teams, you know, you, you're 25 guys in that clubhouse now, 26, but it, it's a lonely feeling when you don't feel the top of the, you know, the top dogs got your back and it's a business and we all understand that. But George was different. Another reason why the Yankees are the Yankees. You, he might be tough. He might be critical. He might put your name on the front of the New York post and blasting you. But I think as a player, when I weigh it out, I can handle that criticism because I know when it comes crunch time, he's going to do everything in his power to win. And I have such a short window to, to win in my career. I, I would take that, that tough love sometimes uh, for the rewards, which is all hands on deck at all costs, win, baby. And I always love Steinbrenner from it for, for that as a as a visiting player uh what are your thoughts on george demand for excellence in everything uh you know you, you, the stadium had to be incredibly clean i mean he, he 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 was involved in everything in everything i remember when the yankees played in the uh the 2000 world series um at shea stadium he um he didn't like the way the the visiting clubhouse looked. The, the, the chairs had Met logos on them. And he had his clubhouse guys go to Yankee Stadium, you know, take the ride to Yankee Stadium, get a truck, and he took all the clubhouse furniture from Yankee Stadium and put it in the visiting clubhouse at Shea so his players could feel comfortable. Uh, there was a water main break, I think, after game three. And he went crazy that the Mets had done that on purpose. It was a water main break in the visiting clubhouse, and he was there, rolled up his pants, and he was he was shoveling out water. Hands-on guy. And I think that the fear of not having an answer for him made everybody work harder. And I think to this day it resonates with Brian Cashman because Brian said that he would work like 30 times as hard as he had to because he wanted to have every answer to every question that George Steinbrenner had for him. He said, sometimes those questions weren't asked, but I had to have them locked and loaded in case he asked them. Because if you didn't have an answer for George, he would get really upset. So I think to this day, it resonates throughout the stadium. Just the, the specter of George Steinbrenner, where, you know, this demand for excellence. You know, like when he was at the ballpark, you knew everybody was just standing up at attention. Everybody's shirt was a little bit crisper that worked for the Yankees. And there was no, there was no uh, shortcuts. And that's not the way he would, you know, if you tried to take a shortcut with George Steinbrenner, you wouldn't be there. So uh, I think the reason the Yankees are the Yankees is because of, you know, what he did when he bought the team in 1973. Because, you know, from 1965 to when he bought them, they had fallen on hard times. And he turned that baby around. And it, cost didn't matter. Work didn't matter. And he just – all that mattered to him was championships. He said winning was, was second to breathing. Yep. Pretty awesome. Uh, current, st- current Yankee team. Now, I, you know, I'm asked to, uh, you know, I do shows weekly and, you know, 
it, it, it's a little tougher for me because of, of my brother being involved. But, you know, as an analyst, I've got to break it down. I've got to be honest. You know, I, I, I watch your games pretty much every day. I'll catch four or five a week. Uh, Kluber's big. He goes down for you guys. You know, I, w- I was a big proponent of that sign this offseason. You know, there were some critics. Uh, how do you pay a guy this type of money? I said, there's a reason they're paying that type of money because there was a lot of interest in Kluber. And as I watched him, uh, as each start compounded, he's getting better and better and better. He leads up to the no-hitter. He goes down. That's huge. You got Severino coming back. Britain's coming back soon. I think Voight's going to be back sooner than later. But what do you see in this current Yankee team? What do they got to do? For me, you need another outfielder. You need another infielder. I know they're pushed right up against that cap. But what does this team got to do to have a chance uh, to get, you know, because in New York, as you know, it's not like being in Seattle. It's not like being in San Diego where you win, you go to the postseason, you give them a good show, everybody's happy. Not in New York. You win and you win the World Series and anything short of that, you stink. So what, what are your brief uh, thoughts on this, on this current Yankee, uh, Yankee team 2021? Well, I agree with you. The Kluber loss was big. Um, hopefully he comes back in two months. And if it happens that he comes back in two months, I think the injury will be a positive because I don't know if he was going to be able to give you 30 starts after pitching one inning last year. So maybe the two months off will be helpful if he's not really hurt, hurt badly. But I think the loss of Aaron Hicks is very big. Um, you lose balance in your lineup because he's a switch hitter. Uh, and now you're forced to play Brett Gardner, who's 37 years old. He's one of my favorite players, but I don't think he can play every day at 37. Um, and I think you hit it right on the nose. I think they're at 203. The, the threshold's 210. I don't know if you're going to get a really significant player that's making less than $7 million a year. That's going to be a real challenge. And I don't know if the Yankees are going to want to go over the threshold. So uh, without the injuries and stuff like that, the thing that worries me about this team, it's so one-dimensional. It cannot create runs. And that's through no fault of the manager. They do not have athletes on the team. They have guys that are built to hit home runs. That's how this team was built. And I think that Major League Baseball – kind of did a little bit of the okie-dokie and changed the ball. Uh, if you watched the other day when Clint Frazier hit a walk-off home run to beat the Tampa Bay Rays. I saw He it. hit the snot out of the ball. Uh, he hit the snot out of it. And he stood there admiring it and posing, and it just cleared the fence. So the ball is definitely deader. So that being said, all the home runs that they're supposed to hit, I don't think they're going to hit them. So how are they going to create runs? And one of the biggest problems so far, and I don't know what the, the answer is, for the two years that he's been with the Yankees, D.J. LeMayu has been a 380 hitter with runners in scoring position. He's almost automatic. This year he's hitting 230. There's a huge difference in D.J., and if he doesn't turn it around, you really can't create runs without home runs. So either they bring the old baseballs back or the Yankees get stronger, but bottom line is this team is built – to hit home runs. And if they don't hit home runs, they're not going to win games. They've had so many games where they score three runs or fewer. And again, there's just no avenue for them to create runs. That's not the way they're built. So they're winning games now because of pitching. And I, I, I hope that the pitching is sustainable where they could pitch to a three and a half ERA. 
if it is, then they can make the playoffs. If the pitching all of a sudden goes south, then I think there's problems because unless they, they change the team on a dime, Brett, I'm not sure they could score runs without home runs. Yeah, to this part, of it, they've been. It's been tough to come by. It's been tough, tough to come by them scoring runs. I was listening to the game the other night. And they said the problem is, you know, it was five to one. Tampa. They said problem is the Yankees haven't scored five runs in three weeks. And yep. um, yeah, it's a problem. You know, I like I like the pers- uh, the chance. I, I, I've been watching this guy for years, and I and I just want him to be healthy for a season and see what he can do. Severino. He's probably more of a, a, a all-star break, if if I'm not mistaken. So that's interesting. I'm always watching out for him. There's certain guys that that it, that your eye goes to, and my eye went to him several years ago. And I'm really interested, fully cocked, uh, fully healthy, what he's capable of doing. But at this stage, I don't think you can rely on that. As in pitching a game in probably over a year and a half. Uh, today's game, you like it? No. Not at all. It's nothing like the game you played in. It's nothing like your Mariner team that won 116 games, the Yankee team that won 114. Uh, there's no there's no action. You're sitting back, striking out, walking, or hitting home runs. I, I don't like it. And I don't blame teams for doing it because that's the most efficient way to win games. I get it. But the GMs and the managers are not paid to entertain. They're paid to win. And the game is not entertaining anymore. It's a slog. It's just a slog. So you see teams strike out 15, 16 times a game. They walk and they hit home runs. To me, there's no, there's no traffic on the bases where guys are going first to third. People don't know how to run the bases anymore. Um, defense seems to be an afterthought. So I hate to say it because, you know, I, I mean, I've loved this game since I was nine years old. It's not the same game, and I just don't have the answer on how they're going to fix it. COVID challenges. How's that been for you this last year and a half in studio, not in studio travel. How big of a challenge has that been for you? Last year was tough. Last year was tougher than this year. Um, doing the games in empty stadiums. Uh, that was weird. It was like kind of like an, a dystopian you know, landscape. And you just never expected to be sitting in Yankee stadium with nobody in there and, and there's a ball game going on. But the weirdest part was we didn't travel with the team. So we'd be sitting in Yankee stadium and the team is in Cleveland or the team is in whatever. And we're sitting in an empty Yankee stadium, me and David Cohn and Paul O'Neill is, you know, in his basement and we're calling a Yankee game from another city. That was odd. This year it's a lot more normal. You know, we've been vaccinated. There are people in the ballpark. There's going to be a lot of people in the ballpark by July we're still not traveling, um, so we're doing the, the road games off the monitor at the stadium. And at the beginning, it was more of a challenge than it is now. Now it seems like the new normal, but uh, I don't know when they're going to have us travel again. I don't, think it, I don't think it's a health concern at this point, Brett. I just think it's a financial thing where we can save millions of dollars not traveling these guys. Uh, hopefully we'll get back to it at some point, hopefully maybe this year or next year. But, um, you know, when people learn how to save money, Brett, they tend to lean toward saving money. That for sure, for sure. Michael K, I appreciate you coming on. This this was a lot of fun. Great perspective from from the booth side. Uh, center stage coming out June fifteenth, and what we do at the end of each and every Boone podcast 
as we kick it back to Dan Levy to ask a question from the fans. Dan O. Hey, guys. All right. This question hey, comes. How are you, sir? All right. Sure. All right. This one comes from Tony in Kansas City. And Michael, he wants to know this. Your favorite announcers of all time and some of your favorite catchphrases of all time. Um, my favorite announcer has been Scully. You know, the fact that he did 67 years as a Dodger announcer is just amazing. The fact that he went to my college, you know, there's a little small connection there. Uh, such a gentleman. I don't think there's anybody that's ever been close to what he is, nor will there ever be anybody close to, you know, what he was. So that's the guy I look up to. I can never be him. I don't have his voice. I don't have a skill, but that's the guy. And I guess my favorite catchphrase is, you know, what I say on a home run, see ya. And a lot of people ask me how it happened. Right before I got the radio job, I was dating this girl. <laughs> and whenever she would get out of the car at the end of a date, she'd open the door and she'd go, see ya, wouldn't want to be ya. And that became the home run call. I just took out wouldn't want to be ya. <laughs> So that's that's my catchphrase. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. You've been a blast. Thanks, Dan, and thank you, Brett. Mailbag. All right, Brett, you know that sound? It's time to head into the mailbag. This one comes from Philip in San Francisco. Brett, can the San Francisco Giants keep this going? No. <laughs> I've tried to break it down. I've, I've looked at it. Time. I mean, they're doing... They're doing a great job. Nobody expected. That's the best division in baseball. Uh, for me, still, two top teams, L.A. Dodgers, San Diego Padres, uh, and the Giants are leading them right now. Uh, I don't see any way they can keep that up in that division. There's going to be too many games head-to-head with those guys. Uh, they're not as good as the Padres. They're not as good as the Dodgers. But uh, kudos to them right now. They're getting it done. Okay. This one comes from Anthony in Miami. Brett, college baseball, the tournament, World Series. You watching it? Getting your attention? No. (laughs) I've got too many other things to watch. But college baseball, you know, I have fond memories. I was a college baseball player. It's a different game. It's a lot of rah-rah. But you're a college kid. That's what you do in college. You go to frat parties and and it's rah-rah. It's, you know, a lot of you pay tribute to your alma mater. It's, it's your school. You know, it's, it's, it's not like an Olympic team, but I don't know. It's, it's different, but it's a lot of fun. I never got a chance to go to the college world series. I I got eliminated in the final game twice, but uh, the college game is a lot of fun. That's where the dream starts. I would have loved to have gone to a fraternity party with Brett Boone. All right. Well, that is going to do it for this year. Brett Boone podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I am the technical director and producer and the voice of the Boone Podcast. Executive producer gets handled by Rich Herrera. Digital content. That's all Liz Landry. Please share the Boone Podcast with neighbors, friends, and those who love the game of baseball and sports. Make sure you subscribe to the Boone Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boone Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Brett Boone Podcast, my name is Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. See ya.